Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBA Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls, driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So first we have our other big announcement that we've been excited about for a while, which is we are joining the Panoply Network of Podcasts, or the Famoply, which I think is such <laughs> a cute name. It's been in the works for a while. They, You may know them as the distributors of all the Slate podcasts, which we're big fans of, um, but also some other non-political shows like You Must Remember This, which is just this really great movie podcast where it's just like old, old-timey movie stories. Um, there's another show that is uh, by the book where it's two friends who are gals like follow a self-help books advice for like a week or two and then report back about like how how it worked for them anyway there's all kinds of fun shows so we're really excited to be part of their network check us out check out the other shows if you're new to us welcome we hope uh, you enjoy listening to us talk about polling today we're on remote because Kristen's traveling but usually we're together in the same room yucking it up um and lots of exciting poll news this week. What are our top lines, Kristen? So normally for our new listeners, this would be the part of the show where I play a song to introduce all of the polls of the week. Because we're on remote and I still don't totally have the editing stuff figured out from my side, just imagine that you are hearing the Star Wars theme song because (laughs) we, ladies and gentlemen, have Star Wars polling and I'm so excited about it. It's fantastic. We have fave unfaves for Almost every character that has been featured in a Star Wars film. That's incredible. But we also this week have a lot of poll on gender in America. Um, This topic has stayed in the news. It was the subject of Time's Person of the Year, The Silence Breakers. We will talk about all of the latest polling on things about sexual harassment. Roy Moore, Donald Trump, he's still at 38%. If you tune into us to listen to his job approval, which you really shouldn't, it hasn't moved. But what's very interesting is a lot of polling on the inside the GOP wars that are waging on and what never Trump Republicans think about things. Plus, millennials, we have your millennial update. And guess what? They hate everything. (laughs) They hate the political parties. They think everything's going wrong. We'll discuss. And then the tax bill passed last week. Government is still at risk of being shut down. We'll look at what people think about the tax reform bill and the prospect of a government shutdown. And last but not least, in our extremely high quality poll of completely not dubious origin (laughs) segment, (laughs) we'll talk about what people think about candy. Right. Good. It's always, it's never, it's always the right time of year to talk about candy. Always the right time of year to talk about candy. Let's start with the Star Wars poll because I am so excited about this. Our friends at Morning Consult conducted a poll where they asked people to give their favorable or unfavorable views of, I mean, it looks like two dozen characters from Star Wars, ranging from the big names, Princess Leia, Chewbacca, Luke Skywalker, all the way down to lesser-known characters, Count Dooku. Uh, you have uh, Supreme Leader Snoke, Jin Erso, characters that you, you, if you haven't seen the newer films, maybe you wouldn't know. Uh, okay, I'm like, who are some of these people? All right, that makes sense. Yeah, so did, did you see Rogue One, the one that came out no. last year? So no. it's fantastic. It is, among some Star Wars diehards, considered better than all three of the prequels. And it is debated whether it or not it is better than the newest one that came out two years ago. Uh, it's very good. And here you have people 
uh, even Darth Vader is viewed as more positive than negative. There are that's my son's favorite. Oh yeah, so (laughs) (laughs) my two-year-old who likes to hear Imperial March as a lullaby. Although he's moved on from that phase, but I'm sure would be psyched if I brought it back. (laughs) Well, all of my my my, the guys over at the Substandard, my favorite podcast besides ours, uh, they are the guys who were the original. The Empire is actually the good guys in Star Wars uh, folks, you know, wrote the column about why actually the Empire is the good guys and Darth Vader is just misunderstood. And uh, so they were very thrilled to see these results that show America stands with them in believing that Darth Vader is more good guy than bad. Um, But here you have Princess Leia is the most popular, highest faves followed by Luke Skywalker and Chewbacca. Han Solo, a little lower down the list than I would have expected. His strong faves, not as high as I would have thought. I mean, he really is, in my view, the heart and soul of this whole franchise. Um, You know, that could just be, is that an eight because of how hard it is to get older folks to do some of these online surveys? Is that an age thing? I don't know. maybe Maybe we're looking for some answers here that this survey was not designed to... Well, the, the, other, the, the other thing that I think is interesting here is uh, Anakin Skywalker, his favorables, just a little higher than Darth Vader's, but his name ID is lower. Not everybody knows that Anakin Skywalker is, in fact, Darth Vader. I think the other interesting kind of controversial finding here, Jar Jar Binks, sort of noted as the uh, least popular, most annoying character in all of Star Wars, or th- that is what was generally thought to be the case. Jar Jar Binks has a net positive favorable rating and has higher favorables than Wedge Antilles, which if you are a Star Wars super fan, Wedge is um, a character that is beloved by those who like really especially love the original trilogy. And so the idea that Jar Jar Binks would have higher faves uh, than Wedge Antilles is like an abominable finding. Just <laughs> like, what is wrong, wrong with you, world? What is wrong with you? Sometimes the pundits get it wrong. They don't know what the, you know, what the people want. They're in their own bubble. So anyhow, I was just, this was, and and I I would be remiss if I did not comment on Padme Amidala, Queen Amidala from the prequels, mother of Luke Skywalker and uh, Princess Leia. And so my, I, I think I've mentioned on the show before, Amidala was my screen name growing up. Loved me some Queen Amidala because she's a 14 year old girl running a planet thought she was great. Her favorables are not great, but they are net positive. She's only viewed unfavorably by a very slim, slim number of folks. Really, nobody here has high unfaves except Darth Vader and Jar Jar Binks, but in both cases, their faves outweigh their unfaves. (laughs) Good. That's good. That's, you know, news you can use, guys. That's a poll that you can actually, it's not going to make you want to Run screaming, turn off your television, turn off your computer and freak out, Um, unlike most of these other polls that we're going to talk about today. So moving on from an imaginary world back into the real world where there's a lot of polling and a lot of different news stories on the angle of what's happening with women's issues and harassment and equality, Um, the obviously Time magazine uh, person of the year was uh, they called the silence breakers. I I think this was a pretty common thought that this was going to be the cover um, that this would be who would be picked. Despite Trump's tweets, this was uh, there was pretty you know I heard that in a lot of places. It seemed you know like that was going to make a lot of sense. What saddened me was to hear that there's never been I think a, an American woman to be the person of the year by themselves. It's always been a group of women or. A woman from outside the uh, outside the United States. Disagree. Wallace Simpson. Really? Was she yeah. a person of the year? She was. Mm. I'm going to dig this up. Hang on. I'm efforting this. I feel I like apologize. I saw this. Like I feel like I saw a post story. I have to admit, I did not do the primary research myself. I saw a post story. I was like, oh, sad trombone. Okay, well. Well, let's see. So, okay, I'm, I've pulled up the bustle. Times Person of the Year, they're talking about it has been... So they officially changed it to Person of the Year in 1999. Um, a a woman has been awarded... An individual woman has been awarded the title four times. Wallace Simpson, 1936. Queen Elizabeth, 1952. Uh, Corazon Aquino, 
1986 and Angela Merkel 2015. But Wallace Simpson, I mean, I I think she's she American. Did, yeah, I think she counts as American. Yeah, was she American when they did it? We don't know. Okay, so all right, so I stand corrected on that one one nugget. Um, but they released a poll to co- go with the story uh, from that they did with our friends at SurveyMonkey. Um, and it's related to some of the other public polling going out there, which shows that a, a party divide and a gender divide in how people view these issues. Democrats are more likely than Republicans to believe accusers, generally speaking. Um, uh, it, it says here 93% of Democrats say they believe the women alleging sexual harassment compared to 78% Republic, of Republicans. It's not a massive difference, but a party difference nonetheless. Um, it, we've seen some of these gender and party differences in some of the other public polls that have come out. There was a new one that came out right before we started recording from our friends at Periundum um, showing uh you know, gender differences in how people are responding to these stories and teaching their kids about consent and harassment with half of women saying that they're teaching their kids about consent, a third of men saying that they're teaching their kids about consent and harassment. And then Pew had this really massive study that, you know, I I wish I'd had more time to review because it's really quite extensive. And it goes through uh, male and females views toward gender differences. So it's not just about harassment, but it's about views toward gender and whether people feel differences between genders are social, you know, they're socially driven or whether it's something more biological. Uh, men are more likely to feel that there's a biology, you know, biological difference than women who feel it's more soci- uh, society that's driving some of these differences. But what was interesting in there, which is kind of related to the broader topic of what do we do next socially and culturally after all these allegations, again, related to the periandum study, how are men and women parenting? Are the, How are they teaching their children about gender or trying to reflect gender in how they talk to their children? So you have, but for both genders, more people who say that they want to encourage women to encourage girls to have more, you know, masculine things to things that are stereotypically masculine, but there's not as much of that same desire among boys that people are more likely to teach their girls about, you know, you can do any of these masculine things, but less likely to teach boys about more feminine things. I'm going to pause there for a minute and see if you had any reactions because there's so much out there. It was I was overwhelmed once again by the amount of gender polling. Well, yeah. So I, that whole question of like, what do you you know do you, do you expose your children to things that are typically associated with boys or with girls? I was just watching on the flight out here to Phoenix an old episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where <laughs> uh, Larry David. Uh, he's dating, I, it's a character played by Anna Gasteyer. I'm not a big Curb Your Enthusiasm consumer because I watch like two episodes at a time and then I just feel like my skin crawling and I'm so, just my anxiety level is so high and I have to stop. Yeah, it's an acquired taste. Yeah. It, I mean, I, I, I love it, but I can't, I can't binge it. So I, I've, I haven't watched them in order. I just sort of watch them as I come across them. But in this episode, he encounters the, the young son of the woman he's dating who he loves Project Runway and he wants to, he loves fashion. And so Larry buys the kid a birthday present and he buys him a sewing machine. And the mom freaks out. And like all the other women on the show are like, you can't buy a boy a sewing machine. And it becomes a whole thing. And I found myself thinking like, no, clearly the boy wants a sewing machine. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> Let him right. have the sewing machine. So this this was uh, fresh on my mind. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the idea, for the most part, you have majorities of men and women saying it's okay for girls to play with toys or be associated with things that are associated with boys. That this idea, like we as a society have gotten past this idea that like girls should just do girly things. That's like, yeah, girls should go be, get get dirty and, you know, go play sports and that's great. But what we haven't seen as much of is men being okay with their boys playing with girl toys. Um, that that like that is still like it would be hard for me to envision on a TV show in the modern era it being played for like a comic gag that someone gets a like a girl 
you know, a baseball bat or something and people freak out, but you can still get laughs out of this whole like Larry David buying a sewing machine for a little boy thing. Um, and the polling here does show, I mean, it is a majority of men who do think that it's good for young boys to play with toys associated with girls, but it, it's like a slim majority, right? It's not overwhelming. It's not nearly as overwhelming as the 72% who say it's good for girls to play with toys thought of as boy toys. Yeah, it, it, I mean, the Pew study looked into this, and, and as we think about how we handle all the harassment and sort of the issues that flow out from that is, you know, uh, w- what does masculinity mean? Is it something that we value it, uh, equally to femininity? Do, how do we define those? Are that Do we value them both equally? And when you see a variety of poll results show that people value their own you know, value masculinity more than femininity in some ways by encouraging women into masculine things, but not the reverse. Um, you know, what does that mean when you then talk about power and you talk about who our leaders are and who we trust when we have uh, debates over, you know, how men behave and who we should believe and whether or not you can trust uh, the, a legislator or a leader after there's been an accusation or even someone admitting to, to some of these allegations of abuse. Um, it, you know, I, I think all of these things are related. And, you know, do we have to value masculinity and femininity equally or do we need to, you know, do we is society trying to decide that one is better than the other, right? I mean, you see some polling, and this was in the Perry Undum polling, would things be better if we had more women in office, right? Does that mean, you know, you see this sometimes in the debates over having women in power and electing more women. Do we need to demonstrate that women would be better in office than men or simply parity for its own sake? And I think that that's a little bit related to you know, how, what do we value more masculinity or femininity? And that's not how the questions are phrased in any of these polls, but, um, but, but some of the findings that can be gleaned from how people approach or think about themselves, their own identity, the identity of their children or, or children in general. Um, it's, uh, we were, (laughs) Kristen, I think about this like ridiculous comment regularly when Kristen and I were on a call, we were talking to somebody who we're not going to name. And he said, (laughs) women are tricky, yo. (laughs) We we looked at each other like somebody did not just say that to us. Women are tricky, yo. Um, Women are tricky, yo. But, but, but here's something that I think is interesting about that particular call, which I'm trying to find a way to phrase this while like concealing enough of what the call was specifically about but the question it was of, a perfectly of, lovely call there it was, was a perfectly lovely call the, the question of women's apparel came up and part of it was describing the phys- the challenges physically of dressing women versus men and so what i think is also interesting in this pew poll is is this question of okay how are the genders different um and then are those genders biological or so or, or based on society And so the biggest thing that people think the genders are different on is how they express their feelings. But a majority think that is societal rather than biologically driven. Um, But then on this question of their physical abilities, there is a belief that there is a, you know, which I guess I'm interpreting not just physical abilities, but, you know, anything sort of involved with the human body, right? Different versus similar, uh, 76% say different, 23% say similar. And 78% say, yes, this is biological. It's not just a societal construct. And what I think is also very interesting about this and the things that people think are different based on, are the genders different, A, and then B, is the difference societal pressure versus biological, um, is I, I think it has a lot to tell us about the the public opinion we see around things like transgender issues. Mm-hmm. And if someone is born to one gender but then transitions to identify with a different gender, uh, you know, what is what is different there and what is not? And I, I suspect you would see, for instance, very different views on polling of transgender rights and, you know, things like being in the workplace and what jobs you should have versus I suspect because of these views on physical abilities, you would see different responses around things like, you know, what sports should people participate in? I mean, I think these are the underlying views of gender that you would then see trickle up into how people view 
different questions about transgender rights. Yes, right. I mean, you know, hopefully the silver lining from all of this, all these news stories is you have people, you know, thinking a little bit more thoughtfully on power dynamics, on how people view what they think of as masculine or feminine. And, you know, how do we how do we recalibrate how we talk about this so people feel like their own identity and their own expression is something that is valued, wherever that may be, uh, wherever sort of any kind of spectrum you may be in all of that. Um, but there is quite a bit to dig into here with all these. So folks, if you're especially if you're a new listener, make sure you go check out our show notes. We have links to all these things and people can take a look. Um, particularly interesting in the periandum study, they showed this is a segue into what it means for Trump and more. Um, you know, people are open to a lot of, they're open to investigation. They're open into hearing more. Three fourths of folks in the periandum study said that they think Trump's uh, abuse allegations warrant an investigation, which I thought seemed incredibly high. And then you have the Alabama race, which, you know, is still ultimately pretty volatile. And I think someone tweeted at us today that on the last show we were like, oh, Moore's got this one. And and I think you were smart to respond, no, we were a little more equivocal than that. But certainly I think at this point it is more likely that he will win than that he will not win. Right. And I mean, you know, the polls more consistently show more up than Jones. Um, and some of them, if you compare apples to apples, so if you look at, you know, Emerson's, poll, you know, I guess Emerson shows a little bit, shows more dropping, but some of these other polls that have some tracking show more's more widening than from the previous poll. And by and large, they show a more advantage. The thing that I think is very much unknown is turnout and how you define the universe and likely voters. And we've talked about that before that, you know, it's very hard to predict something so mercurial and unpredictable and as much of a one-off as a runoff of a special in a state that typically doesn't have competitive races. On top of that, you have, you know, all these, uh, you know, have all this controversy. Um, nonetheless, as you mentioned last time, the fact that it's as competitive as it is shows how people feel about um, about more and how damaging it's been. I think the challenge for, and you see this in some of the other, some of the public polling is, and it's true with Trump and it's true with more, is when you're asking people does sexual harassment make a difference in how you'd vote? Could someone, you know, be a good legislator if they had this kind of situation with abuse? It's it's hard for people to answer those questions without thinking about the elephant in the room, which is, you know, what's happening currently in the news. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees, and it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google/certificates. So it looks as though if we look at Trump's job approval rating, as I mentioned in the top lines, that none of the kerfluffle around Roy Moore or around the Flynn plea deal from last week or any of that stuff has really affected the president's approval rating. But certainly this whole question of Roy Moore has led to deep divisions within the Republican Party. And, you know, whether it's the RNC deciding, okay, well, I guess we're going to get behind Roy Moore again, or the NRSC standing up and saying, heck no, we want nothing to do with this. Um, the, the GOP is divided, surprise, surprise. And there's some really interesting polling out now from PRRI, uh, that dives into this question of, is the GOP now the party of Trump? So I was on record before the election saying, if Trump wins, it's his party, uh, which not being a big fan of the president left me no joy in my heart then when he did win. And it was like, okay, it's his party now. Um, and so despite you know Trump's low approval ratings, what PRRI says, I'm quoting from their report here, that he retains considerable support among those who identify with the Republican Party, that about 18% of Republicans are never Trump, 
um, that 23% say they're leaning away from him, that maybe they supported him in the past, but they, they don't necessarily know that they're going to vote for him in 2020. Uh, you've got 19% who are leaning toward him, who maybe they didn't always like him, but now they like him, they're in for 2020. And then 40% who are always Trump, that they supported him in the past, they'll support him in the future, they like him. Um, and it turns out that if you are the sort of person who is always Trump, you believe that it is okay for leaders to break some rules. 66% of the always Trumpers think that they agree that because we've gotten so far off in this country, off track in this country, we need a leader who's willing to break some rules if that's what it takes to set things right. 66% versus 31% who disagree. For never Trumpers, the numbers are reversed. That no, the ends do not justify the means. We are not so broken as a country that we should have a leader that just smashes plates and you know breaks rules and throws out norms. That that's not not a justifiable trade off. So there are right. big. That to me is a very interesting way to separate out never Trump versus always Trump. Is this question of like, do the ends justify the means? Right. And this is, you know, I mean, this is like what I was talking before about the harassment questions. I mean, are people responding to that question thinking about Donald Trump? Most likely. Right. How would different types of Republicans answer this question if they were thinking about in that situation a Democratic president for whatever reason? They probably would feel very similarly. Right. So, you know, so I think that's worth reflecting on is, you know, the, this desire of like, is it okay to break some eggs really kind of depends on who's doing the breaking. Um, on the other hand, you're, these are all Republicans. I mean, these are all identified, you know, self-identified Republicans and you have, you know, a sizable number of them who say, you know, it, it, we shouldn't break rules and, you know, the ends don't justify the means. And I say that even if the ends may be something that with which I agree. So they also tried to identify, are there specific policy issues that cleave Trump from never Trump folks away from each other? Um, you know, the, do you think that the, and, and so on one of these, they basically ask about the level of threat someone would see from democratic policies, which again gets to this ends justify the means question. Like this is the argument you hear in the Roy Moore debate that, well, he may be terrible, but you know, it's worse having another democratic Senator. And so here on this question, they say, uh, you know, which of, do you feel the democratic policies move the country in the right direction? Only 5% of Republicans think that's the case. No surprise. But then do you think that they are somewhat misguided, but not dangerous? 53% of never Trumpers say, yeah, that's where I'm at. I think Democrats are misguided, but they're not dangerous. Whereas for always Trump, they, 30% of them believe, no, no, no. Democrats are so misguided, they present a serious threat to the country. Um, or 60, pardon me, 62% of always Trumpers say, no, 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 Democrats are so misguided, they pose a serious threat to the country. So that is also part of it. Like one, it's your appetite for ends justify the means. But two, it's your sense of like, what is the threat? And what is the trade off worth making? And if you perceive the other side as being such a grave threat, you're willing to stomach an awful lot of your own side in pursuit of beating the other side. Right, right. And, you know, there are a couple other things, too, that are worth looking if you want to kind of dig deep in how some of these other, you know, how Republicans view some other issues. We're going to talk about taxes in a little bit, but, you know, there's been some softening, I, I think, kind of a broader pattern. The Perry-Undum study showed it. This uh, study shows it. It's like a little bit of softening on views toward you know, Republican issues, you know, the Republican brands generally, Republican opposition to government guaranteed health care has declined a little bit, you know, over the past few years, according to the PRI study, you have, you know, views on um, uh, how people view uh, the Republicans generally having declined in some of these studies. So it's, you know, it's, it's tough news. I mean, I guess, you know, if you look at it, 40 percent full glass, 40% full, I guess there's good news for Trump that he still has a, has a chunk of his base who are in this sort of always Trump category, um, that he's, you know, as we've discussed before, there've been reports that that's the part of the poll he looks at. We knew that was a part of the electorate he seemed to care about, but it definitely seems to be part of the polling report he looks at more specifically. So I guess this gives him a little bit more data to chew on. Well, the other group that I think is interesting to study is uh, ha to what extent, you know, we see these divisions within the Republican Party. Are there divisions within young Republicans? And this is a question that 
I There is a piece that I have written that hopefully will be coming out soon. I cannot say any more about it, but that will dive into this question um, based on data coming from the Harvard Institute of Politics youth poll. So this is like my Christmas twice a year is when Harvard puts out this poll. Um, John Del Volpe, friend of the show, uh, you know, he he leads their effort uh, with a group of students to figure out what do millennials think about things. And uh, right now, it's not great, Margie. It is not great. Uh, 14% of young Americans believe our country is headed in the right direction. Uh, I looked at past year's polls, and typically it is much higher than 14%. Um, that at this point, fear is outpacing hope for the future. 67% say they are fearful uh. of the future. Only 31% are hopeful. Most of those hopeful folks are Trump supporters. Um, Trump's job approval rating is down seven points since the spring. So back in the spring, his job approval uh, was low. It, but, you know, when you looked at his job approval among young Republicans, it kind of looked like where old Republicans were. It has atrophied a little bit. Now Trump's job approval among young Republicans is only 66 percent, uh, which is still a majority. And to this point before about, OK, what percentage of the GOP is never Trump? This idea that like, ah, it's all the young people are the never Trumpers. Like, well, not entirely. Yeah. You know, for a lot of young people who don't like Trump, they've just left the party. Like they're not hanging around as young Republicans who dislike Trump. They've they've pulled the ripcord and jumped out of the plane. They're gone. Um, so the fact that even among those who remain, Trump's numbers have slipped, I think is notable, but he still wins two thirds of young Republicans. Um, the issue where he gets the worst ratings from young Republicans are on race relations. Uh, and I think the thing that should freak Republicans out is, on the one hand, uh, young voters have rejected both parties in terms of who do they think cares about them. I wrote my column about this this week at The Examiner that uh, only 34% of young voters think Democrats care about people like them, but the numbers are even worse for the GOP at 21% and Trump at 19%. So you'd think, okay, well, young voters are, they they don't think anybody cares about them. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they are split evenly between the parties on who they're voting for, uh, that by a two to one margin on the generic ballot, they prefer Democratic control of Congress. So Republicans remain really screwed with millennials. Chapter 856. There we go. Yes. Is that, <laughs> is that the number? Is that what the chapter would be to the selfie vote? To That's your what appendix? it feels like. That's what it feels like. We could have those uh, those gals that do the buy the book uh, podcast where they follow a self-help book for a couple weeks. They can follow the selfie vote <laughs> for a couple weeks and see if that changed the fortunes around of the Republican Party. I mean, I, you know, I looked at these, the data. I mean, I think the challenge is when parties and political candidates want to reach young people, they get enthusiastic. It's great to have enthusiastic young people who can volunteer, who get excited, who, you know, do fun stuff online. Um, you know, it's, I think it, this has been true for a while. You tell me you're the expert, but you know, since younger voters, no matter what cycle or who, or what the political climate is, they're just not going to vote at the same rate as older folks for a variety of reasons. They're more mobile. They're less tied to the place where they live. They're less connected to just how voting is going to work, where they are. They have a little, they may feel that they have less skin in the game. And then that's a reinforcing cycle where then candidates are going to be less likely to try to reach out to them for those reasons. So, you know, the, the, these data, I, you know, I, it, I wish it had the effect where it's going to make Republicans more specifically, but either party reach out more and try to make sure they're appealing closely to young people. <laughs> I, you know, it may, it may not. I think it may not. Uh, I got, I got a spoiler alert for you, Margie. <laughs> I've been fighting this battle for like almost a decade now. It's not yeah. going to change their behavior. And look, the the thing is, this is a slow burning fuse. And so yeah. young voters have been trending away from the GOP for over a decade but their numbers, you know, they played a huge role in making Barack Obama president. But in these midterms, they dramatically underperform their potential as a voter block. In 2016, even though they did not warm to Donald Trump, they also didn't warm to Hillary Clinton. And so you had this like 10% or so voting third party that 
by all accounts, I think, should have been Democratic votes. And yet they pro- this is the Cornell Belcher thesis that like these protest votes were what cost Hillary Clinton the election in some of these blue wall states. Um, but take a look at Virginia, right? There's a really interesting article, I think, in the Washington Post about how turnout was way up and much more heavily Democratic in a lot of these precincts that are near college towns in Virginia. And so that played a big part in, I mean, it, with Northam winning by as many percentage points as he did, you can't just say, oh, well, it was young voter. I mean, it was, it was a lot of things. Lots of people. Um, lots of people lots can have themselves people. on the bag. But yeah, I, uh, I I think if you look at Virginia and you see that young voters, especially I think young, more highly educated, more progressive voters are very engaged, very ready to resist. They don't feel, especially if they didn't vote in 2016 and now they're feeling regret about it, these voters are going to turn out. And if Republicans don't, I mean, if you have a college anywhere near your district, you're not doing something about it you got problems. And so I will just leave it at that. So speaking of things that have problems, the tax plan that's been making its way around Congress, um, you know, is not popular. I think we've seen, we haven't been talking about it every week, but the polls show a very consistent story. They haven't really changed much as it's been discussed um, people disapprove it. They, they, they don't favor it. And you have majorities who say that they, um, they have, they're not favorable toward it. When you look at some of the breakouts, whether it's breakouts of specific policies or breakouts by party, um, you see Democrats more united in their opposition and Republicans supportive, but not enthusiastically. So, um, it's, you know, as we've talked about in previous shows, as you continue to talk about some of these policies and the more drawn out the debate is, the less popular it, uh, proposal becomes rather than more popular. Um, this doesn't seem like it's going to have a long drawn out debate. I think that's, you know, similar to what we saw with Obamacare repeal, where you had something that was pretty unpopular done in a rushed way that perhaps magnified its unpopularity, but at least prevented it from being you know, dragged out in an unpopular conversation. But, you know, as I see it, I look at these numbers and they're, you know, they're consistent. However, however they're just, you know, however it's asked, do you think it's going to help the rich? Is it going to help people like you? Is it going to create jobs is maybe the one place where there's a little bit more optimism, but, but overall you don't see even the Republican base being very excited about this. And it just, to me, it, you know, makes me wonder why this is such a Republican priority. If it's not something that even their own voters want, it's worrying that we're, you know, debating this major piece of legislation that you know even even voters in the Republican base are not particularly excited about. Certainly not voters overall. Um, you know, it's hard to get a good clear read on something as complicated as this. Um, there's obviously not a final bill for people to respond to. So they're just responding to kind of the, the big story out there, what their sense the, uh, of what, uh, the bill will be. Um, but it, you know, to me, it looks like, you know, tough news for the bill. The question is, what does it mean for, you know, Republicans and Democrats electoral chances? So I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of the, Obamacare debate and not I'm not wading into the like how legislatively did it happen or any of that Uh, what I uh, what I mean to say is that uh, a question that I have for uh, I have a question that I want to pose to you which or that I want to pose to our Democratic listeners which is this Uh, the Affordable Care Act was something that came from a long 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 time of Democrats saying, we want to reform the healthcare system. We want to do something about it. But you can argue that the politics of Obamacare after it was passed, but before it was really implemented, um, and then again, even as it was being implemented, it was it was not a terribly popular law. It was only became a little more popular once repeal came on the table, and then suddenly it was that you don't know what you've got till it's gone moment. And you can argue that in the 2010 and 2014 midterms especially, Republicans running on Obamacare saw big gains. It's part of why you have a Speaker Ryan. It is, if you say that the premium increases that dropped right before Trump, right before the election in 2016, is that part of why Trump is president? All of which is to say, 
if you were a Democrat and you had the choice of we pass Obamacare knowing that this is what will happen to state legislatures, to the houses of Congress, to the White House over the next couple of years, or you don't pass Obamacare, but you get to keep control of Congress longer, Donald Trump doesn't become president, what do you choose? Because I think right now a lot of Democrats would say, look, Obamacare may not have been popular when it was passed, but people are eventually going to see that they're getting you know, right. care that they didn't get before, and eventually they'll come to love it once it's implemented. And I almost feel like Republicans are kind of making a similar gamble, that they sort of get like, we have wanted to reform the tax code in this way for a long time. This is our shot. We've got to do it, even if it's going to cost us some of these members in California and some of these members in New York where people get upset about the state and local tax deduction. And even if it, you know, there are some parts of our coalition in sort of upper middle class suburbs where they itemize their deductions and now they're actually going to be paying more. I mean, I think from a policy perspective, an irony here is that the people who are going to get hit worst by this bill, it's not going to hit the poor and the middle class necessarily. It's going to hit the sort of upper middle class that itemizes their deductions. And a lot of those are Republican voters. But, you know, nonetheless, which I think I wonder to what extent that's part of why you see Republicans not loving this as much because sort of upper middle class suburbs used to be a big piece of their coalition, have been trending more Democratic, and now maybe going, right. wait a minute, you guys are raising my taxes? What the heck? Um, but I, the, this is something that I would I would love to ask this question of Democrats. Like, if you could trade, Obamacare never happens, but then Trump never happens. Like, would you take that deal? Because I mean... That's, that's kind of what I think Republicans, you know, you've passed this thing that in the moment is not very popular... You are gambling that people, when they begin filing their taxes a year from now, go, oh, my gosh, I'm so excited that my standard deduction is doubled uh, and that the, suddenly they will love it. But in the meantime, you've got the 2018 election that's going to happen. Are you willing to lose control of a House or two of Congress in exchange for this change to the tax code? And do you think these changes are resilient enough that in the same way that Republicans took power but could not uproot Obamacare – do you think that these changes are going to be permanent enough to withstand, you know, houses of Congress changing hands? So that's I mean, my it, take on the polling around all of this. So there, there's uh, there's very little I wouldn't trade away to not have President Trump be president. I mean, he is so toxic and damaging and every day. I feel exhausted following all the damage that he's doing. <laughs> if you had to ask me this question, there was I mean, there was really very little I wouldn't trade away personally now. Um, you know, whatever sort of gains there may be as a party, as a result of having, you know, Trump being so damaging that he's a rallying cry. That's a separate question, you know, in terms of like what I think is happening to, I mean, he is so, so damaging to the country. It's just, it's incredibly painful to watch, um, on an hourly minute by minute basis. Um, you know, the other thing when looking at some of these questions, it, and there's some shutdown questions, too. It's just a reminder of how tough all this stuff is to ask and measure. I mean, there was a question, I think this was in the Harvard Politico poll, where they asked about the SALT um, deductions in a way that I found a little confusing. Like maybe, maybe it's just a heading. Maybe that's not the question wording where they said the public's view about eliminating the federal deduction for state and local taxes Americans pay to lower tax rate people pay. You know, I'm not sure people are going to understand exactly what that, how that comes across. And then the morning console and Politico had some questions about a shutdown, um, which I guess is also looming. And they had a, a variety of questions in, uh, that say for each of the following, please indicate if you believe the issue is important enough to prompt a government shutdown. And they have all these various questions and, and people don't want a shutdown. Almost two thirds say in a, like a up or down Congress should take all steps necessary to avoid a shutdown. They should find another way to achieve their goals. But in these individual issues, is this important enough to prompt a shutdown? I'm not sure if people are responding to that because they think it should prompt a shutdown or if that's they mean that the issue is important enough that it will prompt a shutdown. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if people are saying, yeah, this is important enough. It is going to prompt a shutdown. Or are they saying, this is important enough. Yes, this is that important. It should prompt a shutdown. 
I, I'm not sure, but maybe I'm overthinking it. But I think that for things this complicated, it's it's tough sometimes to get it exactly exactly correct in a way that everyone's responding in in the same way. Yeah, I feel like the the way that I would want to frame a question like this would be asking people like, even if you don't like either of these two outcomes, which outcome would you prefer? The government shuts down for a while, but the border wall does not get funded. Or the government stays open and some funding goes to the border wall. Or which would you, even if neither of these is something you'd love, which would you prefer? The government shuts down um, for a period of time and the shutdown ends with something being done about the Dreamers. Or the government doesn't shut down and it continues to be unresolved what will happen with the dreamers like right framing for people so that it's not just like would you shut down the government if because again like you said shutting down the government is so unpopular uh just general i mean we saw this in all of the polling the last time when republicans did it when it was like would you rather shut down the government um and not see funding go to obamacare or i i just think you've got to present sort of both pieces you're not supposed to ask these double-barreled poll questions, but if you say, look, neither of these may be perfect, but these are the two scenarios we're looking at, shutdown and pressure to do X versus no shutdown and no resolution on X, then what do you do? Yeah. Yeah, and then in Quinnipiac, they asked in the latest Quinnipiac poll, um, if there was a shutdown, who would you blame? And Democrats are divided between Republicans and Trump with 51% saying Republicans and 40% saying Trump Republicans overwhelmingly would blame Democrats and independents are going to independent 30% say Republicans, 30% say Democrats, 24% say Trump, 16% say don't know. And that leaves it to like basically, you know, a fairly even divided electorate overall. overall. So I, yeah, I mean, I I just remember the this question. I, I feel like when you are the party that is uh, the one, like, threatening to shut the whole thing down if you don't get what you want, I feel like even during the last shutdown, it was Republicans, where, like, a majority of Republicans would say, like, yeah, it's kind of our fault we're shutting it down. Like, there's this thing we want, and we get that we're using this as a, a tool of leverage. Right, what was that, a hot mic moment? Like, hey, I think we're going to win this thing. Like, that was the Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell hot mic. Oh, I, I don't think we're going to be that. okay. Yeah, there was some, like, hot mic, like, I think we're, I think it's going to be okay. You know, <laughs> reassuring each other that, like, they were going to win the messaging. But, I mean, you know, here's the thing that I've, I've heard in focus groups, and it, it kind of makes sense when you look at the polling among independents, which is, when people hear about a shutdown, they just think like, oh, I mean, we all lose, you know, even even if objectively you can point to one party, it's it, it still people look at it as just Washington just can't, you know, tie its own shoelaces. And we all we all lose every time this happens. Well, speaking of we all lose, I feel like we need to talk about this candy map because <laughs> I have some major I have some issues and some questions. So to wrap up our show today, we've got um, a poll that was done by CandyStore.com. Noted, <laughs> noted, noted reputable poll. What uh, is their grade on 538 as the kind I, of pollster that they are? What is Candy Store's latest APOR like, paper that they've are presented? They, are they in alignment with the APOR Transparency Initiative? No. So they <laughs> surveyed over 50,000 customers to determine their favorite Christmas holiday candy in each state. And none of these candies are Christmas candies. You well, there are candy monsters. canes in Georgia and everything else. There's like Florida two. Florida so and Montana. Guess what? Skittles, not Christmas candy. Yeah. Uh, it's- Alabama and Utah, reindeer corn, red and green candy corn. It's not a thing. And the fact that it's your number one candy fills me with grave reservations about you as a state. Starburst, <laughs> Missouri Starburst is not a Christmas candy. What's no, happening? I know. This is the decline. Decline is a choice, Margie. Pez, no. Pez is everywhere on this map, and I just don't get it. I've never felt so disconnected from my own country as I do looking at this map. I, you know, I felt exactly <laughs> the same way. I mean, we had this thing here in the in the 
uh, script. And I had a little note to Ryan, who very kindly helps us with the script. I'm like, can you just put like, is there like an infographic or something? And then I look back and there's this really garish picture of just, you know, blaring candy. <laughs> very little of it is Christmas candy. And like, it's this a map of America, like all this, you know, candy trimmed with like a, you know, the border of America is like a candy cane, one giant candy cane. And it's so... It's just a little too bright for my eyes currently. But, you know, California has peppermint bark, I guess, which is that's officially a Christmas candy. Um, But, yeah, most of these things are not Christmas candy at all. And I completely agree about the reindeer corn. I mean, most of these things look disgusting. There's like this horrible Pez, Santa Pez dispenser that's like looking kind of ominously over Texas. (laughs) (laughs) I I like Pez. I'm not anti-Pez necessarily. I just don't think it is a Christmas Candy. I mean, Jolly Ranchers, Illinois and Minnesota. What the heck is wrong with you that Jolly Ranchers are your number one Christmas candy? It's no, not Halloween, lo- guys. Gosh. It, there's lots to not like about this poll. <laughs> I agree with you. and uh, But I, I agree with you. And then I love the, like, sample. The sample headlines they suggested in their email pitch. <laughs> are reindeer corn really your favorite Christmas candy? Survey says yes. <laughs> reindeer corn i cannot believe it cannot believe it comfortably smug will be so excited to hear that this is a thing Ugh. yeah i'm i'm more of a christmas cookie than a christmas candy person we were all pretty excited about the washington post christmas cookie issue you know every year they have a christmas cookie thing that they do with the post so and we all everybody got got very excited with putting in their like imaginary orders if they could eat cookies all day which would it be um Okay, so key findings. Worried about the country right now? That is so millennial. And this holiday season, let's mix it up a bit. Guys should talk about their feelings. Women should buy feminine presents for the men in their life. Everyone should talk to their children about consent. Unless, of course, you want to talk about the tax plan. The polling there is definitely not mixing it up. It's very consistent. And Christmas Pez and reindeer corn. Those are some things definitely worth shutting down the government to avoid. You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters individually at, at Margie O'Mero and at K Soltis Anderson. You can find us on Facebook where throughout the week we post links to the stories we might want to talk about on the upcoming show. And you can find us www.thepolsters.com. And again, we're so excited to be a part of the family new listeners coming to us from panoply land. We would love it if you would write a review. We hope you've liked this week's show. We hope that you're not Pez partisans or Jolly Rancher advocates who are horribly offended by my rant just now. Well, you can tweet us. (laughs) But you can tweet your anger. That's fine. Tweet your anger. (laughs) I will defend my position. We do love to hear from you, even when it's angry. Yes. Especially when it's happy. (laughs) Yes. Bye. Thanks.